0: Welcome to the Garden Church podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. I uh, am a former friend of your lead pastor, Darren's. backstory to that is a number of months ago, he called me up and said, hey, we're doing this series in tandem with Reality San Francisco on the empowering presence on the Spirit of God. Will you come and teach for it? And I said, yes, um, because I love the Spirit and because in November I'm wearing a t-shirt. Welcome to Southern California. You have no idea. You're from here, you just think that's normal. It's not normal. Um, there's a whole other world out there where it's just not like that. So, um, it was an easy yes. I love your community. I love what God is doing here. And so I was all excited to come. And then a few weeks ago, I called him up and said, okay, so what do you want me to teach on? And I'm just, I assumed when I said yes, he would give me prophecy or healing or, you know, one of the good ones. And you're a guest speaker. Like, there's kind of like, there's a little of a social cue there, you know? And um, so he said, I mean, I say, like, I just come to serve, but I don't actually just come to serve. <laughs> I come to just, you know, do what makes me look good. And, um, and so he said, oh, oh, what weekend are you here? Oh, you're on for tongues. Thank Thanks, Darren, so much. And then I called up my buddy Dave up in San Francisco, and we're all friends, or we used to be friends. And, um, and he said, oh, it's perfect. The way it worked out, you're here one Sunday, you're at the garden the next weekend. We're just going to have you do tongues at both churches. So now I'm, I'm, I'm the tongues guy now. I'm just on the West Coast tour of weird sermons. So on that note, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Um, if you just hate what comes out of my mouth for the next hour, just, it's not my fault, okay? It is not, it is not my fault, and the regular guy will be back next week, um, whom I'm no longer friends with. But, uh, no, I say that because, and I say that not tongue-in-cheek, but... Um, Uh, (laughs) Ah. That was just spur of the moment. How witty. Oh my gosh. No, don't misread me. I'm not down on this manifestation of the spirit that we are about to work through at all. I just recognize that it's theologically complex if you're new to this conversation it's culturally bizarre because we have no equivalent for it in the late modern Western secular world, and it's emotionally loaded for a lot of people. If you grew up in a church tradition where this there was abuse of this, um, either through the practice of it or through weird theological, like, a ban on it or whatever, I just recognize this is a tender spot for some of you in the room, so... Um, let's just work through what the New Testament has to say with the easy yoke of Jesus, just a calm, relaxed trust in him and his vision for us and see what God would have for us. And at the end of the day, whatever you think about this manifestation of the spirit, it's about prayer and prayer is as always about a greater depth of intimacy with the God that Jesus called Father. So just set aside some of the weirdness. I'll do my best to debunk a little bit of that. And some of it is just weird. Um, But I'll do my best to set that aside. But remember the heart behind this entire conversation is just what would it look like to have more intimacy with the Father? And my guess is that you're here this morning either because you ache for that, you want more intimacy with God, or you're here, so you at least want to want more intimacy with God. And the beauty is God meets us where we're at, not where we should be. And so wherever you're at with God this morning, just welcome on behalf of the Garden Church that I will never visit again because I'm no longer (laughs) friends. So this is our last time together. So welcome. And let's start off in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, that word Pentecost is where we get the, word, the moniker Pentecostal because of the story we're about to read. They were all together, the followers of Jesus, in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw, notice the language, what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated, this is Hebrew imagery, and came to rest on each of them. Now, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The key word in this story is the word all. Again, we skip right over it. If you're a first century Jew, this is radical. If you've been reading through the story that we discover in the library of scripture, you know that so far the Spirit has has not been on all of the followers of God, but on a select few, on a Moses, on a prophet Jeremiah, on a judge Deborah, not on all. This is a new chapter in the story of God, a whole new epoch, really in human history, where now the spirit of God, which is just code for the God's empowering presence, is no longer on a select few, a prophet, a priest, a king, but on all. All the followers of Jesus. And the next line is, and they all began to speak in other tongues. There's a footnote there in my translation of the Bible. Look down at the bottom of the page. It can also be translated languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Not Rosetta Stone, whatever this is, it's something else. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So this is a famous Jewish feast. Two-thirds of all Hebrews are living outside of Palestine at the time. So who knows that for sure thousands, if not tens of thousands, of followers of Yahweh are in town for the feast from all over the Greco-Roman world. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, "Wait, aren't all the people speaking here Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia—that's a thousand miles to the east There's a whole Bible nerd thing there. It's where the Tower of Babel was. That's where the division of language. I just don't have time to go into it. It's Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, way down in the south, that's where the followers of, of God came out of, in slavery, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, it's a thousand miles to the west, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonder of God in our own tongues or languages. Amazed and perplexed, and people have been amazed and perplexed about this phenomenon for a very long time, they asked each other, what in the world does this mean? Now, before we talk about what in the world does this mean, all I want you to notice is that the Spirit comes and what happens? They all speak in tongues. And this is not a one-off. Turn over to chapter 10, just a few pages to the right in your Bible, Acts chapter 10. 10. If you know the story of Acts, chapter 10 is the fulcrum point, the before and after story. This is the story about the movement of Jesus outside the ethnic boundaries of Judaism to the Greco-Roman world. So because of the story that we're about to read the tail end of, how many of you are not Jewish as far as you know? Yep. You're here because of this story that we are about to read the end of. Take a look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, in context, speaking the good news about the availability of Jesus in his kingdom to non-Jewish people, the Holy Spirit came on, there's our word, all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, which is code for Jewish. By the way, like, I think we should bring this back. Just some of us call ourselves the circumcised believers. Others are the uncircumcised believers. I just, like, what a bizarre thing to identify as. Like, we think identity politics is is a little bit weird. This is a whole other level. We're like, all of you circumcised believers, uh, that's just so weird. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift and notice that word there is singular. We'll talk about that in a minute. Of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on non-Jewish people, and the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in what? Tongues and praising God. There it is again. The Spirit of God comes and what happens? They all speak in tongues. One more, turn over to chapter 19. A few pages to the right. Chapter 19, verse one while Apollos was still at Corinth, so now we're well up into the Greco-Roman world. This is in modern-day Greece. Paul took the road through the interior. He arrived at Ephesus. Paul's this Jewish rabbi, so we're, just, we're way off the map. He found some disciples, and you're thinking, oh, disciples of Jesus. No, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We missed that podcast. We were out of town on a road trip, whatever, <laughs> Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Oh, Paul said, John's baptism, if you know that story, was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, to get ready for that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning they became disciples now, not of John the baptizer, but of Jesus himself. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in what? Tongues and prophesied. And the story goes on. There it is yet again. The Spirit of God comes, and what happens? They all speak in tongues. Now, let's take a step back. There is no doubt, just a cursory reading of Acts and the writings in the New Testament, there's no doubt that when the Spirit of God comes on men and women, doesn't matter your ethnicity or your gender or your socioeconomic status, when the Spirit of God comes on people, they speak in tongues. It is a one of the byproducts is they speak in tongues. But listen carefully, it is not the byproduct. There are 22 stories, if my math is right, in the Book of Acts alone about people who become disciples or apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth. In three of the 22, we read they speak in tongues. None of the other ones. So you have just, just read every single thing in the Book of Acts on speaking in tongues. You're, you're an expert on this subject now. So it happens, people are filled with the Spirit and speak in tongues, but it doesn't always happen. On that note, just to begin, there are three teachings on the subject of tongues or other languages that float around in the American church subculture that we just want right off the bat to say no to. The first is this. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. And that's just not true. It is one of the byproducts, not the byproduct of the Spirit of God. Secondly, If you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved. As crazy as that sounds, it comes from a more fringe, hardline Pentecostal group of the church, but that is a full-on teaching that's actually on the books for one major denomination in the United States right now. So this is out there. And again, we just say, heck no to that. Then on the flip side, like way over on the other side, is the teaching that tongues are, and the language that is used is, quote, not for today, This comes from a theological stream called cessationism, which is basically the idea that all of the manifestations of the spirit, in particular, the more miraculous ones, prophecy, healing the sick, any kind of a miracle, tongues, or the interpretation of tongues, all of that ceased, hence the name cessationism, with the writing of the New Testament. Basically, now that we have all of the Bible, we no longer need any of that stuff. That was then, this is now. Now, I don't have time to get into it other than to say theologically, it has been thoroughly debunked at an academic level by scholars from all over the world. But functionally, it is still the default setting for most churches in the U.S. If you want to know more, ask Darren, my former friend. So all three of those teachings with a lot of just like no judgment, but we just say no to that, right? That is not what the New Testament says on the subject of tongues. So follow-up question, what does the New Testament say on the subject of tongues? For that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which is the most, by far, in-depth passage in all of the New Testament on the subject of these tongues or these other languages. Now, um, this is a letter that, if you're new to the New Testament, this is a letter. It's not an essay. It's not a theological textbook. It's a letter written by that Jewish rabbi, Paul, to the church that he planted in Corinth a number of years later. Now, just a few things you need to know before we interpret. And basically, all I have to do today is walk you through, kind of line by line, a 400-verse chapter. Um, (laughs) A few things you need to know. One, this chapter is a compare and contrast between the manifestation of tongues, and what Paul calls prophecy, all right? So the plan is to work through it this week with a focus on tongues, and then I think next week with a focus on prophecy. Secondly, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul is dealing with chaos in the weekly gathering of the Corinthian church. So this is about tongues, but it's not about tongues in your kind of early morning time with Jesus and Chemex or whatever. This is about this time, this space right here on a Sunday morning or with your house church on a Thursday night or whatever. That's the context, okay? Finally, and this is key, listen carefully, the Corinthians have the exact opposite problem to your church and mine. So in the church in Corinth, most everybody was speaking in tongues in public and the weekly gathering was wild and spasmodic and freaking out of control. In a church like yours and a church like mine, we tend to have the exact opposite problem, am I right? Where a lot of us are not speaking in these other languages at all, not even in private, definitely not in public, and the weekly gathering is like, oh, this is an impromptu thing that we apologize for, but it's most definitely not wild and crazy and out of control, does that make sense? So all that to say, if Paul comes off a little snarky or a little negative or a little down, don't misread him. He's not down on the manifestation of tongues at all and neither am I and neither are we. It's just in context, he's dealing with the exact opposite problem. Does that make sense? A few key things. Now you're ready, let's do it. Chapter 14, verse one. Follow the way of love. So whatever this whole next thing is about, about love wow. and eagerly desire, and then in my translation, the NIV, it's gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. Now that phrase, gifts of the spirit, or some of your translations have spiritual gifts, is one word in Greek. It's pneumatikos. Can you say that? Pnu. It's like weird. Pn. It's kind of. It's weird from this Greek word pneuma, where we get the word, where we get the English word pneumatic. It's the word for spirit. Now because of how, this is an odd Greek word, and because of how it's translated into English, the most common language for all the stuff the spirit does in your life and in mine is spiritual gifts or the gifts of the spirit. But Gordon Fee, who you don't need to know that name, but he's essentially the leading Pentecostal scholar in the world up at Regent University in Vancouver, BC, a prolific author, he makes a compelling case that pneumaticos should not be translated spiritual gifts or the gifts of the spirit. That a far better translation is um, his recommendation is either spirituals, which is the most literal translation of the Greek into English, is pneumaticos spirituals, or it can be translated spiritual things, or spiritual people, or my personal favorite is stuff the spirit does. That's just so just so lowbrow. I love it. Very Portland or Long Beach, just stuff that the spirit. Does. Now, I far prefer any one of those translations, spiritual, spiritual things, spiritual people, stuff the Spirit does, over spiritual gifts. Why? Um, because when a lot of people hear the language of spiritual gifts, which again is an English translation, the word gifts is not there in the Greek. And when a lot of people hear that, what they think of is spiritual superpowers. So it's kind of like you're filled with the spirit and then you become like a Christian X-Men or something like that. And it's like, oh, what's your spiritual gift? And we mean, what's your spiritual superpower? And somebody's like, oh, it's prophecy. And another person's like, oh, I got healing jealous. You got healing. And then, and then somebody's like administration and you're like, oh, sucks to be you. Right, this, this dude's over praying for the sick and you have Excel, have fun in the office, you know? And, and where that's coming from is there's a list, um, two chapters earlier in chapter 12 of nine manifestations of the spirit. Then there's another list in Romans chapter 12 where the word gifts is used, but ironically the word spiritual is not used. It's just about gifts, it doesn't say spiritual gifts. People read it that way, it doesn't say it. Then there's another list in Ephesians, of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, where the word gift is used. Again, spiritual is not used in context. And then there's another one in in Peter. And what a lot of people do is cobble together those four lists into like this master list of what people call spiritual gifts. And there's even like an online spiritual gift test to take, which is like the Myers-Briggs for charismatics or something. where you go in and you put in your stuff and you're like, oh, I have the spiritual gift of administration or whatever (laughs) it is. And again, I say that not, that might be right. Um, I say that not, not to mock, that might be right, but I think that's not what Paul has in mind. I don't think what Paul is saying is that when you're filled with the Spirit, you get a spiritual superpower, and it's one off of this list of 20 or 30. There's a list, two chapters earlier, of what Paul calls the panaticos, and then his synonym for it is the manifestations of the Spirit. Meaning these are ways that the exact same Spirit that was on Jesus of Nazareth manifests in and through your mind, your body, and your life, where you do something and you're like, people around you say, whoa, that, that wasn't just you. That was a manifestation of the spirit of God in you. His list, next slide, is there's nine. The message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers. Nobody ever claims that one. i want like, what's your spiritual gift? Miraculous powers. I can't show you, or I'd have to kill you. It's so, <laughs> prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Now, he does not say if the list is exhaustive or not. He just has a list of nine manifestations of the spirit. Now, one way to read this is: this is a list of nine. Add it together to other three other passages in the New Testament. You have one of these spiritual gifts. I think a better way of reading this, and I'm not alone, I'm with Gordon Fee and others, is that these, this is the stuff the Spirit does. Wow. All of this is stuff from the life of Jesus. And if you follow Jesus on the streets of Long Beach or wherever you call home, this and you open your mind and your body up in faith and you step out to what God is stirring in you and on the street, this is the kind of stuff that will manifest in your life. You'll have a prophetic word. You'll pray for somebody once in a while. They might actually get better. You might even do a miracle once or twice. You might have a tongue or interpretation. You might have faith for a moment. You might have a word of wisdom. You might have a message of knowledge for somebody. We just know something. How This is the kind of stuff that manifests in the life of an apprentice of Jesus. Meaning, my take on this, all of this is available to all followers of Jesus. It's all by grace, it's all just by the favor of God, here you go, but I think all of this, not just one, is available to you if you follow Jesus. Now, feel free to disagree, push back, ask the regular guy next week. My point is, Paul has this list in chapter 12, then in chapter 14, what's open in front of you, he circles back to this list, And he goes in depth on two, prophecy and tongues. And he says that we're to eagerly desire, like we're to want, we're to crave. The word there is actually, the word that's normally translated to covet. We're like the one area in your life where greed is okay, is around the manifestations of the spirit. You're to ache for, to want, to covet in the marrow of your bones, the spirit of God to do all this kind of stuff in and through you, but especially you are to covet, to desire, to really want bad, to prophesy. And then he goes in depth on two of the nine in chapter 14, prophecy and tongues. Prophecy because it's the most important in Paul's mind, more on that in a minute, and tongues because it's the most problematic in the church in Corinth. Now, before we get into it, what exactly, if you're new to the conversation, are these tongues? Well, the word that is translated tongues in the NIV or in the English translation is from the Greek word glossa. It's where we get the word glossary. And honestly, it's not a weird word in the original language. All it means is languages. It would have been so much less weird sounding if it just said languages. This is how it was translated 400 years ago in the King James, and it just stuck around. So Bill Mounts who's the leading Greek scholar in the world. If you ever go to Bible college, his book is the book that 99 out of 100 Greek classrooms use for Koine or Biblical Greek. And he was on the translation committee for the NIV. He's also about 20 minutes north of where I live. So I see him once in a while, and I shot him an email recently like, why did you do this? Which is kind of (laughs) just, Feels very millennial to say that, you know, to somebody who freaking translated the Bible and you're like, <laughs> I take issue with this one word and this one passage. And he basically said, Yes, you're right. This is not a weird word in Greek. All the word means is languages. Um, but because of interpretive, interpretive tradition, because of how it's been translated for so very long, we stuck with it. All that to say, when you read this word, don't think this weird thing. What are tongues? It just sounds weird. Just in your mind's eye, think languages or other languages. All right? If you want a more working definition, because these are not just any kinds of languages, not just like, oh, Spanish or, you know, whatever, Portuguese. It's something more going on here. Here's a working definition tongues or these other languages are a form of prayer and praise you express to God in a language that you do not understand. Or if you want a more academic definition, this is from N.T. Wright, one of the leading Christian intellectuals and New Testament scholars in the world. He defines it as the gift of speech, which though making sounds and using apparent or even actual languages, somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. So just hold that definition in your mental doc, and now let's work through the passage. Verse 2. Anyone who speaks in a tongue, or one of these other languages, does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one even knows what they're saying. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more, I want you to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Okay, right off the bat, here are five things we pick up from Paul on the subject of these other languages. One, these other languages are to God and not to people quote, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. So if you're ever in a context where there is space for that in some kind of a gathering and somebody has a tongue and another person says, I have an interpretation, one of the ways to know if that is an interpretation or if it's just a prophetic word or if it's just somebody in need of attention, and it can be all three or anything else, is to say, oh, is the interpretation to God or is it to somebody in the room? If it's to somebody in the room, more likely that person is hearing a prophetic word, not hearing an interpretation. Does that make sense? <laughs> Secondly, because la- prophecy is to other people, tongues are to God. Secondly, these languages don't make any sense, at least not to the speaker. No one understands them. So you don't know when you're praying, you don't know what it is that you're saying. Three, these languages edify the speaker, but not the church. So quote, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, end quote. Now, that word edify is a Christian subculture word in English. Uh, We don't walk out of the movie theater and say, man, I was just really edified by that or whatever. It's just not street language. I don't think it is, not where I live. I doubt it is in Long Beach. But it was a very ordinary word in Paul's kind of linguistic world. It was just a word from the construction industry, and all it meant was to construct or to build up. And there's a whole word picture here that Paul develops in his letter to the Corinthians of how the church is the temple of God, and even your own mind and body are the temple of God, no longer made out of concrete, no longer in Jerusalem, but now made out of flesh and blood and all over the world and down through history. And so for Paul, everything is about, does this construct, does it edify, does it build up, does it create space? in your mind and in your body and for the church in the gathering of the church for more of the spirit of God, more of the reality of God's presence and power and person. Does that make sense? Does it edify? That's what's at the back of here. And basically it says these other languages edify you. They create space in your own mind, and your own body for more of the reality of God, but they do not edify the church as a whole unless if there's an interpretation, which is why number four, we pick up, they are not nearly as important as prophecy. I would like all of you to speak in these other languages, comma, but even more, I want you to prophesy, end quote. So in Paul's mind, There's a a metric system. Not all of the manifestations of the Spirit are created equal. Some are way more important than others. And as far as we can tell, for Paul, prophecy is at or near the top of that list, and these other languages are at or near the bottom. That doesn't mean they're not important. It just means they are not nearly as important as, say, prophecy or healing or something like that. Finally, in Paul's mind, ideally, everybody should speak in these other languages. I love that line. I would like for every single one of you to speak in tongues, end quote. Again, this comes back to how you interpret pneumaticos. Are these spiritual gifts, read spiritual superpowers that you have or do not have, and you have one on the list? Or are these manifestations of the Spirit of God, and all, at least that list of nine, All of this stuff is open to you. If you apprentice under Jesus, you have the spirit, you are on about what Jesus is on about in Long Beach or wherever you call home, is this the kind of stuff the spirit of God does in you? Again, I think it's the latter. Now, there's a lot, and we're just in paragraph one. Let's keep reading. Verse six, now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and I speak in these other languages, What good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or a word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sound, such as the pipe or the harp or the guitar or the piano, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue. There's a little play on words there. How will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them was without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, again, in Greek, pneumaticos, the stuff the Spirit does, try to excel in those manifestations that edify, that build up, that construct space in the church for the presence of God. That's the idea at the back of it. Now, this paragraph we just read is Paul's case for why we should only speak in these other languages in the weekly gathering if there is an interpreter. And if not, we should just keep quiet, right? This is Paul's case. Again, this is not really a problem at the Garden Church, but just go with Paul. We pick up some cool stuff and he basically has um, three metaphors for why this is so. The first is music. So um, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless if there is a distinction in the notes, end quote. So for, is this on over here? For music to make, there we go. For music to make sound, this is, I know, just enough to get in trouble right now. Um, For music to make sense to the ear, it needs, those of you that have music theory class at some point, needs two things. It needs a key, so here's the easy one, C. (laughs) Key, that's the key of C. All white keys, it's the easiest one to play. And it needs meter, it has to have... um, 3-4 or 4-4 or 6-8 some kind of a rhythm. So here's uh, let's see, the key of F I think this is in (laughs) 4-4 I'm a 30 something white male everybody in my demographic wants to be Chris Martin, right? (laughs) So that's music (laughs) I'm dating myself right here (laughs) But that's music. And the documentary is out Wednesday night, in case you're around. Um, So that's what, and who doesn't love music, by the way? That might not be your jam. But every, like, I've never even heard that. I'm 25. How old are you? Um, But everybody loves music. Now, when there is no distinction in the notes, when there's no key, and there's no meter, you have this. What does that sound like? Yeah, a little like jazz, but um, <laughs> but not well-played. No, it's not a slam on jazz, like you, that's fine. Um, that sounds like noise, right? So if there's no distinction in the noi- notes, it's not music, it's noise. And that's Paul's point. Listen, if people don't know what you're saying, it's not music, it's noise. It doesn't edify the church. It's just noise and chaos and ow! What stop it, please, right now? Second metaphor is this of the war horn or the trumpet in battle. So this is the ancient world, long before radio or whatever is used on the battlefield today. And for a general would direct his army on the field of battle with a ram's horn or trumpet and one kind of blast or signal meant charge, another meant retreat, another meant flank right, another meant flank left, you would really want to know what the sound was if you were a soldier, am I right? Otherwise, what if the sound actually meant retreat and you thought it meant charge? What would happen? Nothing good, right? And so Paul's point here is actually... When we speak in these other languages in the weekly gathering with no interpretation, not only is it noise and weird and caustic and stop, it's actually dangerous. Because the best way to ruin something beautiful is to abuse it. My guess is there are people in the room this morning who have been around the abuse of this. And it turned you off, maybe not just to the manifestation of these other languages, maybe to the spirit himself, maybe to intimacy with God, maybe to a whole tradition in the church and stream of what God is on about, all because of the abuse. Third metaphor is foreign languages. Uh, This one is also very simple. Is there, can I get a volunteer really fast, I won't embarrass you, for whom English is a second language? English is your second language. Michael, fantastic. Let's just go with Michael, because you're already so well-spoken and funny. And you have a microphone. That makes it so much easier. Would you just... What's your, what's your native language? Romanian. Romanian. Oh, ah, uh, like two years old. And... Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. So would you just... You just learn something new about Michael. Um, would you... It's Romanian is a language, right? It's not... Yeah. Yes. Let's yeah, real, real. It's real. <laughs> embarrass myself as yeah. like a white colonizer or something. Um, would, you, would you just say something... In Romanian, two three sentences. Don't interpret it for us. Just say something okay. in your native tongue. Yo sunt Michael Petrila și lucrez biserică, a Garden Church, și sunt bucuros că tu ai venit Man, that now, sounds like just... Borat to people who actually speak Romanian. I am really sorry. <laughs> okay, so pause before you go. How many of you were just edified by that? <laughs> Who aren't Romanian, okay? <laughs> and don't speak Borat. How many of you were just, like that, that just created more space in your mind and your body for the reality of God? Yeah, exactly. None of you. Um, now, what did you, what did you say? I said, my name is Michael Petrillo. I work here at Garden Church, and I'm super happy that you're here this morning. I think that's... I forgot. I Something just kind of like off the cuff. <laughs> so when, you, when you say it's your native language, you mean kind of. Well, I mean, like, it know. was my first language. It but, was your yeah. first language. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank cool. you, Michael. Cool. Thank you. Thank well done. You. Again, I mean, Paul's metaphor here is very easy to understand. You cannot get very far at all in intimacy or relationship with another person if you don't speak the same language. Otherwise, even if the heart is good, even if what is being said is beautiful and good and kind and Christ-like, it just doesn't connect with you in any way. So again, Paul's saying that's what speaking in these other languages at the weekly gathering with no interpretation is like. That said, um, it doesn't mean that he's down on this at all. Keep reading. 13, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. We pick up a few more things in this next paragraph. One, if and when you speak in these other language, always pray for an interpretation. Fourteen, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That's really interesting. So you're praying, but it's non-rational. Like your mind is in neutral when you're doing this. And so it doesn't mean that you're necessarily in a trance, or it's like when I speak in these other languages, I don't all of a sudden start to shake and like have my eyelids roll back to all white like a horror film for Jesus. It's not, <laughs> it's not like that. It's very down to earth. It's very low key. It may or may not have any emotion Tied to it at all. It just means that when you're speaking these other languages, your mind is kind of just not in gear. It's just in neutral. It doesn't make sense to you. Um, some scholars think these other languages are other human languages. And so it might not make sense to you, but it does make sense to somebody else. There are all sorts of like just antidotal evidence for this. Our mutual friend Todd Proctor, who's up here on a regular basis with you, is just telling me a story about a prayer gathering he was at. England, where um, there's 30 or 40 people in this little prayer gathering, and one person started to pray in a, what she would call prayer language, or any one of these other languages, and immediately a couple in the back started weeping. And they stopped the prayer meeting and said, whoa, are you okay? Do you need prayer? What's going on? And the couple said, yeah, do you know what language you're praying in? And um, this person said, I have no idea. And they said, well, that's French. And the person said, I have no idea. I've never been to France. I mean, um, you think you'd recognize that, but whatever. Um, and then the couple couple said, oh, we're actually moving to France in three weeks to plant a church. We've been wracked by anxiety, and everything you just said brought deep peace to us, and that's why we're sobbing, right? So there's all, we, could, we could tell story after story after story of antidotal evidence for these are other human languages. Other scholars argue actually no, it's angelic languages based on Paul's line in the chapter before. If I speak in the tongues or the glossa of men or of angels, other, like there, this is this is nerd level stuff. But some linguistics have actually record, some linguists have actually recorded a number of tongue speakers from Pentecostal churches, done a syntax study on it, and come to the conclusion they are not other languages. There's not enough grammar and syntax to them. This is way over my pay grade at this point. My guess is it's a combination of all of the above: some human languages, some. Angelic languages, I don't even know what that means. Some non languages, it doesn't really matter. Paul's point is that to you, the prayer or the speaker, you have no idea what you're saying, right? And that's okay, that's just how it is. Then he goes on, so what shall I do? Just read books all the time? No, I will pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding, meaning I'll speak in tongues and I'll also like speak to God in language that makes sense to me. I will even sing with my spirit, and I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer meaning somebody who comes into your weekly gathering who's not yet a follower of Jesus, but is curious, is interested, and then you're all like speaking in this wacky language. What the heck? How can they say amen to your Thanksgiving since they don't even know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough. That's great. But again, no one else is edified. And that's Paul's litmus test for what we do and do not do in the weekly gathering. It's not, is this fun for me? But does this construct space in the church as a whole for the reality of God, right? So again, here we can just get this last kind of pickup. This is a form, whatever this is, a form of prayer and praise. Now, we come in verse 18 to the climax of Paul's case for why these other languages are beautiful but less than helpful in the weekly gathering with no interpretation. 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. <laughs> Drop the mic, Paul. <laughs> This is such a great moment. So scholars argue this is like a drop a grenade in the church kind of moment. So scholars speculate, and we don't know for sure, two things. One, that the Corinthians most likely assume Paul does not speak in these other languages because whenever he comes to town, all he does is teach and prophesy. And so they just assume, well, he must not know how or have the capacity to speak in these other languages. Secondly, again, speculation, but scholars theorize, based on what we know about the church in Corinth, if you have read this letter, there is a high degree of a spiritual arrogance in the church, which tragically often comes in the kind of charismatic movement. And scholars speculate that the Corinthians assume they are more spiritual than Paul is, because again, they think, he does not speak in these other languages. So this is like, Paul's like, oh, actually, I hate to say it, like, but I do this more than all of you. But then he goes on, but in the church, meaning, and he means in the weekly gathering, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct, I'm a teacher, others, than 10,000 words in a tongue. So I would rather speak five intelligible words, Jesus is Messiah and God. Sit down, done. Thank you for coming all the way from Rome, Paul. Um, I'd rather do that than 10,000 in one of these other languages. That word 10,000 in Greek, and the original language, it's the highest number in the Greek language. Wow. So in English, like you could translate that than a bajillion. Or I don't even know what the highest number is in, I don't know. It's like it has math in the upper right-hand corner, whatever it is. Um, I would rather say five words than a bajillion because nobody else is edified. And this is essentially Paul's philosophy. Oh, I speak in these other languages. They are one of the manifestations of the spirit. I'm all for it. I want all of you to have this experience of intimacy with God. But actually, I don't do it really at all in the weekly gathering, maybe on a rare occasion if there's an interpreter, but not really at all because it just does not edify the church. And the point of the weekly gathering isn't for me to edify me. It's for me to contribute to what God is doing to create space in us as a community for his reality. That's essentially Paul's philosophy. Um, This is one I have adopted in my own life. I speak in these other languages. I have for a number of years, but I don't like travel and do it at other churches. Like nobody invites me actually to do that. Like, hey, will you just come down and speak in tongues at the garden church? (laughs) I've yet to have that invite. Um, The closest thing was this teaching and I'm still complaining about it. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER That would be a great way to get Darren back. I should have just come here and just spoken in tongues for 45 minutes (laughs) and said, you learn by doing, goodbye, Um, whatever. But I I do this. This is a part of my prayer life with Jesus on a regular, if not daily basis, and I love it. It's not over-the-top important. Prophecy, for example, is one of the most important aspects of my relationship with God. I can't even imagine following Jesus without prophecy and without friends and community and family members who prophesy and speak into my life. And late last night, I was watching the sunset on the beach in a t-shirt, because you can do that. I hate you. Um, and, I was, and I was journaling like a prophetic word that God just brought to mind that was spoken over my life that just brought all this clarity to this season of my life where I was just a little bit like, what the heck is, what am I doing right now? So good. Um, these other languages are not like that for me they're a gift, they're grace, they're beautiful, but they're not an essential component in my prayer life. And maybe that's just my experience, and don't read that into yours. But, but that said, there are times when I just feel not edified, I just feel torn down. You ever feel that way? Emotionally, or even spiritually, you just feel empty, you don't even feel the reality of God's presence in your life, and speaking in these other languages, it edifies me. It builds me up. It creates space in my spirit for the relationship and the reality of God. Other seasons where I just get sucked into busyness, and my mind is just this endless to-do list, and my mind is shut off from the reality of God. And just to slow down and operate in this and speak in these other languages, there's like an open space in my mind and body to God. There are other times when I run out of stuff to pray. Anybody else? Like, yeah, two minutes in every morning. Um, or it's not that I run out of stuff. This is more, more problematic for me. I just, there are times when I just don't know how to pray in a situation, and I, like, think about the election. You know what I mean? Some, some of us were laughing. I have a friend who did three days of prayer and fasting for the election, and I was talking to somebody in the church, and they're like, but I can't tell what to pray for, (laughs) you know what I mean? And how does that even work? And I don't even know exactly what to ask for. And in those moments, Paul has a line in his letter to the church in Rome that scholars debate, but most argue, is most likely about speaking in these other languages, where he writes about prayer, and he writes, the Spirit himself prays for us in groanings that words cannot express. Right, so sometimes it's just like, I don't even know how to pray, so just hear God. Let your spirit pray through me in these other languages. But then, the, honestly, the most common example in my experience, and I would love to hear about yours after our gathering, is when I'm just so full of wonder and awe and gratitude and praise toward God for who he is, for what he's done, for my life in his hard but good and rich and satisfying world. That, do you ever reach a point where just the English language does not cut it? And so then I normally move to poetry. Mm -hmm. And like, first we just start with Hillsong, like on Apple Music or whatever, and then that doesn't cut it. So then you go to Wendell Berry or whatever your poet of choice is. But then at some point you just, the language does not, it breaks down. And so sometimes, do you ever just have this sense of, ah, I need more? Like, how many times can you say, God, you're awesome? Like, it just it doesn't have mental traction by, like, time number seven or whatever. Um, my son Jude is over here at 13, just turned 13, and we were road tripping down. Remember last week, we were road tripping down Highway 1 for this coming-of-age initiation right to manhood thing, and we were camping in... November. Just, you're Californians. You're crazy. And it was beautiful. And we're driving Highway 1. We're north of San Francisco, between like Sonoma Coast, and, and which has got to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. If you've not been there after church, drive north. Um, <laughs> it's so beautiful. And remember, buddy, there were like multiple moments where we'd come around a corner almost die off the side of a cliff. And, and then we just like kept saying, wow, amazing. God, you're so good. And like we just ran out of stuff to say. So then we just started speaking in tongues. It was a little weird, but we know each other, right? <laughs> like There's just a moment where you're like, it, it's the beauty was so overwhelming. And I think because I'm such a natural skeptic in my mind, and I live in a city, and I'm not around beauty on a regular basis, and I It's just so easy for me to just let the secular narrative play in the back of my mind. And when you're that close to raw, sheer beauty, like you have, you ever have that moment, like, wait, how could I possibly doubt the reality of God? The reality of this is creator and creation, and God is good, and he's here, and he's near, and I'm with my son, and all is well in the world. You ever just have that sense? You're like, yeah, once every 10 years. Well, however often you have that sense. And it's like words just don't cut it. And in that scenario, I just break into these other languages, again, as a form of prayer and a praise to God. So I'm essentially with Paul. I think this is beautiful, not essential, but beautiful, I would love for all of you in the room who follow Jesus to have this dimension of intimacy with God. Um, It's okay if you don't. It doesn't mean you're less spiritual or less Christ-like. This is not a sign of maturity at all, case in point, the church in Corinth. Um, But this is a beautiful thing. I would love it for all of you. If you wanna do it in your weekly gatherings, talk to Darren and John and others. And there's space for that if it's done well. Few churches ever mature to that point but some do, and you might stand a better chance than the vast majority of the rest of us. But really, the best place for you to exercise this form of prayer is you, Jesus, highway one in the morning, on a walk to the dog park under your breath, just, I mean, don't be the crazy neighbor, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Just you and Jesus alone. Skip down to the very end of the chapter. Verse 39, there's a whole bunch more. I'm out of time. It's very technical. Google it. At the very end, here's Paul's summary. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, your family, be eager, want, crave, in particular to prophesy. You'll talk about that next week. And do not forbid speaking in these other languages, which tragically a lot of churches full-on forbid and disobey this bar none. But 40, here's the summary statement. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And that's because for Paul, again, opening line, follow the way of what? Love. All of this is about love. All of this is about a greater depth of intimate, relational, loving relationship with God, the Father, and with your brothers and your sisters to your right and to your left. So to end, I think the call here is for you and me to eagerly desire the pneumaticos, that list of at least nine, if not more, manifestations for the spirit, put another way, to really want the spirit of God to work in and through you in like similar ways to how he worked in and through Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says that eagerly desire, not once, but four times in two chapters. 12.31, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Four, one, eagerly desire the spirituals. 14.12, since you are eager for the Spirit's activity, try to excel in those that build up the church. 14.39, be eager to prophesy. Do you see it, not once, not twice, four times. He's driving the point home. Ache for this, want it, desire it, seek it, go after it. And if you're here this morning and in all honesty, and remember the place to meet God is always where you're actually at, not where you should be. There's no other place to meet God than honesty. And if in all honesty, you're not here, you don't eagerly desire this, you think it's weird or wacky, or you just don't really care, you'd rather go watch Man in the High Castle after we're done or go out to brunch or whatever your thing is, then meet God there for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of some kind of a trauma from your past or upbringing or the abuse of this manifestation of the Spirit, and it's an emotional trigger for you, and you need inner healing. We would love to pray for you in just a minute, for inner healing over you. Maybe just because um, the way you're wired, you're more like a little bit less emotional, a little bit more logical, which often, and I'm that way, (laughs) makes it a bit tricky to be in a more kind of charismatic or spirit of God expression of church, like mine, like yours, and remember, we're, we grow up in this Western secular, some of us are educated, particularly at a college level. You're so, but all across, just by society, we are educated into this post enlightenment kind of hyper rational view of the world, which is scientifically not true, psychologically, most definitely not true. If there's anything that we know from science, it's that human beings aren't way less rational than we think we are. <laughs> Um, But the Western myth is where this autonomous, objective, like smart, rational, which is absolute baloney, and you know that from personal experience, but that's the cultural narrative. And so it's often really tricky for us to engage with or encounter God in non-rational ways. Um, This is why I think of the practice of fasting, which in Jesus' mind, when he teaches on the spiritual disciplines, it's one of the three most important. It was central to the way of Jesus up until the Enlightenment right? After of that, now it's pretty much non-existent. In the, in, like, so basically, until 300 years ago, if you were a follower of Jesus, you fasted every Wednesday and Friday, basically, and usually for 40 days at Lent. And now, people are like, whoa, what's that? Or that's weird. Or it's like, once a year, I fast I from my phone. I'm like, that's not even what the word means. It means not eating, like whatever. Okay. And so, <laughs> you're like, whoa, you just ruined it for me. Um, no. No. So listen carefully. I say that not to disparage anybody. I say that because in the world that I grew up in, I cannot even fathom a way of relating to God through my stomach rather than through my mind. So if you say, hey, John Mark, listen to this podcast, read this book, go to this class, make sure you're at church every Sunday, take notes during the teaching, all of that makes sense to me. You say, hey, every Wednesday and Friday, don't eat until after the sun goes down. Like, what? You tell me to pray ask God for these things, or contemplative prayer, oh, which is like Christian mindfulness, it's like so amazing, that makes sense to me. You tell me to speak in a language I don't even understand where my mind is in neutral and I don't even know what's going on, that, that just doesn't compute to my hyperlogical Western brain, right? So that might be your experience. But remember, so whatever the thing is, if it's trauma, if it's a theological background from a cessationist church, if it's just the rationality that you're used to, the air we breathe, remember, again, all of this is about love. All of this is about relationship. And one of the ways that you measure the level of intimacy in a relationship is by how many non-rational things you do together. So when I'm with my spouse, we don't just talk. I'll let you use your imagination. We do other things that are less rational. When I'm with my kids, we don't just have intellectual conversations. We play together, we tickle each other, we cuddle, we play Legos, we do non-rational things. If you and I don't know each other and we were to meet after church and then have lunch together, I wouldn't just randomly start cuddling you. I wouldn't ask you like, do you want to just play Legos, right? I would have a rational, logical conversation with you because we don't know each other very well. But when you're with somebody you know well, in particular if it's a romantic or a love relationship, it's not that it's less rational, it's rational and it's non-rational. And often it's the non-rational where we have the greatest depth of intimacy. So in the same way, this isn't an anti-rational, like, weird thing. I'm all for it. That's much easier for me. But God has more for you than a book, a podcast, a theological truth, a teaching at this moment. It's all beautiful. Don't, it's not less than that, but it's a heck of a lot more. There are things that words can't express, that words don't even need to try to express. It's about a depth of intimacy. It's about love. And at the end of the day, in the kingdom of Jesus, Everything is about love. Like, this is true north. This is what we come back to over and over again. So, really fast, and for those of you that want to step into this manifestation for whom it's new, there's no formula, there's no, like, chapter and verse in the Bible where this is how you do it, here's my best guess, Um, one, create space. With all the stuff the Spirit does, it all comes down to how busy are you? Will you slow down? Will you create space in everything from your morning routine before you reach for the phone, the news, rush out the door to your Peloton or whatever you do here? Um, will you create space? For you, that might mean take a retreat day, fast for a few days, just get up an hour early tomorrow morning before work and go to the beach or your favorite quiet place and just create space. Then ask God. God, I want this. I want to pray in these other languages. I want this manifestation and more. I want a prophetic word. I want whatever it is. And then just give it a shot. Just try it. Just talk. Just say something. Just let breath flow through your mouth. And if nothing happens, don't stress. Don't worry. Don't feel less spiritual. Don't feel unsafe. Just try it. And if nothing happens, just repeat steps one through three. (laughs) And if at some point something comes to you, then practice it. Often, again, this is just my experience, no chapter and verse for this. It comes like a language comes, a word at a time, a sentence at a time. You might start with a word, then move to a phrase, then move to a sentence, then have a paragraph. And like It's not necessarily like all of a sudden there's a lightning bolt from heaven and you start speaking fluent whatever. You know, maybe, I, again, there's no chapter and verse for any of this stuff. But if you want it, I go after it. Remember again, back to love, back to romantic relationships. There's something about the seek and the find. Yes. Um, my sister is here. She's just has been in your church for a little while. Um, Bex, do you remember what Grandma used to say? Who, like pre-feminism? Please, just don't judge me on this one. Remember how Grandma used to say to you and Elizabeth before you were married, "Run just fast enough to get caught." Remember, that was like her, that was her advice. I know that's not feminist chic, whatever, right? But run just fast enough to get caught. There's something to that. Like in a romantic, if somebody's overly available, there's, you, you kind of think there must be a reason for that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> but like the ones that are the most, there's something to this like pursuit of somebody that you're falling in love with. And and, and it's not that somebody is hard to get or, I mean, maybe it's that, but it's not in God's case. I think it's that that itself is an expression of love. And so I think God often runs just fast enough to get caught, not because he's aloof or too cool for school or you have to earn Him like, but simply because it makes us step out of the crowd, step out of the noise, step out of the busyness and pursue him to a quiet place of intimacy. So for me, I remember the first time I did this, I just, after hearing a teaching on this, I set aside a day and I literally climbed a mountain. It's actually more of like a hill, but I was 18. It felt like a mountain. (laughs) And um, I'm not, not athletic and I just remember hiking up this hill mountain thing, and just praying and asking God for this. And I remember at one point, halfway back down actually, just a word came to me, then a phrase, and that's all it was, three words by the end of the hike. And three words turned into four, turns into five, turned into a part of my prayer life, right? So there's something to this. Just go after, seek, pursue God. Where to do this? Well, for sure, just in private. You, Jesus, in the morning, on a hike, on your drive to work, for sure. Secondly, in times of worship by singing, that's a beautiful context. If it's not a distraction to the people around you, I love to hear that at our church. Um, Three, in times of intense prayer, Uh, like I, I do think there is a time and a place where you just are contending for spiritual breakthrough, where even if there's not an interpretation, there's some power or some potency in this. Um, I remember our mutual friend, Mike Pilavachi. You guys know Mike? He's been here before from the UK. A British leader, crazy prophetic guy. Darren and I have been learning a lot from. He was telling me this story about, he does this event called Soul Survivor. It's like four or 5,000 students in the summer out of this camp and they do Holy Spirit stuff at the end of the teaching. And he gets to that end part, end part and they start to prophesy and heal the sick. And there's a Romanian there who comes from this hyper conservative back, cessationist background where tongues was demonic and that was what he was taught. And so he's weirded out by all of it, gets up, starts to walk out the back. Now there's 4,000, I think, people in the room. So Mike doesn't even see that, but Mike's up on stage and just randomly has the sense to pray in one of these other languages. Not, I've never, I've been around Mike a lot. I've never seen him do this on stage, been to our church. He's never done this, thankfully. Um, This is not his default, but he just really has the sense to offer, this is a great, example of a tongue in the weekly gathering. And um, so Mike just speaks in his prayer language. This dude walking out the back door stops dead in his tracks, is arrested by it. And what Mike, unbeknownst to Mike, is speaking is in ancient Romanian dialect, and he quotes verbatim a scripture that this young high school boy, his dad has tattooed on his back. What? This happens, people. This happens by the way, like, why can you get a back tattoo but not speak in tongues? What kind of, what kind of subculture is that? Come on. I don't, I don't get that. So there is a time, intense prayer. Um, I've done this before in an exorcism once, or in the weekly gatherings, if you're like, whoa, I'm out of time. I don't have a story for that. It happens, people. It happens. My point is, I don't know how Paul would do this with however many hundred people are in this room in Long Beach. I mean, his church was very different, 30, 40, 50 people, and even there he was wary of it. My point is, this is something that is not, a, it's not at the top of the list, but it's on the list. Yes. It's not essential for you to have intimacy with God at all, but it is an opportunity yes. that you're all invited into a deeper, and I think really, if I have nothing else to leave you with today after this teaching, that was way too long. Um, but hey, I didn't want to give it in the first place, okay? Um, but if there's anything to leave you with, it's just that. Whether it's, this looks like languages for you as the next step, or whether this looks like a new morning routine where something happens before you reach for your phone or go to the gym, or whether this looks like just a new level of honesty with God and prayer, I think the invite, of God to you and to your church is to a greater level of intimacy. Not just to a new spiritual toy, but to a greater level of intimacy with God. This is one medium for that. There's a whole lot of other ones. That's the call. Whatever you're ready to take the next step into, take the next step. And this is the beauty of our pastor, our good shepherd Jesus. He meets us where we're at, not where we should be.